Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you. We're continuing on in our series, uh, The Human God, where we're allowing the gospel of Mark to recenter us on the story of Jesus, uh, which seems tremendously obvious to do if you claim to be a Christian church, that you, Jesus is pretty important to us. Um, so we're kind of marching through Mark, uh, but we've always got a, kind of our eye towards our yearly vision, uh, be strong and take heart. That's what we feel like the Lord's calling us to examine this year. So as we're watching Jesus move through the story, and especially as we framed it for Mark, that Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem um, with this confrontation against the powers and the principalities, whether it's the power of the Satan, whether it's uh, human institutions that stand uh, to be threatened by the advancement of the kingdom. We're watching uh, Jesus' sense of resilience and what he calls us to as his followers, to, to take up that type of uh, emotional maturity, spiritual growth uh, that we call uh, resilience. And I will echo everything um, that Steve said about the EHS course. Uh, it was really fun to notice that in some moments in that video, Uncle Pete does not have the Argyle sweater on, and sometimes he does. So when you do production work, you notice these things, but he's great. And he's of that dying breed of New Yorkers who still say huge instead of huge. You know, that accent is dying out, like uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and Pete Scazzaro, they all say huge. It's not, it's not around anymore. Uh, anyway, we're not here to talk about Uncle Pete, we're here to talk about Jesus. Um, so, so for me, I, you know, I, I mentioned last week, like, I'm actually really falling in love with the way that Mark tells the story, um, that it's so, uh, you know, fast and it's action-packed. Um, this is a Jesus that doesn't have a whole lot of words, but he's doing a lot of things. And you get this sense of the urgency of what Jesus is doing in the world. And was, as we've even seen in several of the stories, um, Jesus performs a miracle or engages with people. And he says, don't tell anybody about this because he's kind of trying to get them to, to, to wait for the right time for this, this confrontation between the kingdom and the empire. Um, so I wanted to kind of begin here uh, you know, a lot of times what I'm doing in our community, uh, as I'm sitting with some of you one-on-one, -on -one, is I'm asking these questions, God, what are you doing? What's happening uh, in our community right now? Like, sort of, what's in the water? And one of the things that I've noticed over the past, I'd say two months, um, and this has been verified by some other leaders, is that I feel like a lot of you are maybe on what I would call the prodigal loop. So if you know the story of the prodigal son, um, he leaves the father's house, um, he, he sets off in the name of freedom. He finds himself in the foreign territory, um, completely destitute, um, lost, not knowing who he is, and he returns to the house. He returns to the place he was always welcome, um, but the invitation is for him to receive it in a dramatically new way. And as I've sat with a lot of you and we've done one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction, I've heard this continual theme that for many of you, uh, a lot of us, we grew up in the church in some a denomination or expression of the Christian faith. And we became disillusioned, and we started to think, well, there's got to be something more to this. 
And all of this rules following that I'm feeling from the Christian faith or these standards that I'm supposed to be living to, well, they don't really seem to hold water. It seems to be confining instead of a path to freedom. So I'm going to walk away and I'm going to find something newer, bigger, better, meets my needs, etc., etc. Um, but for many of us, we've, we've, we've tried that. We've walked away from the house, so to speak. And we still kind of feel this sense of, uh, lostness, like the space is too wide open in a way. There's not really any boundaries. There are no expectations at all. There's no call to morality. There's no call to intimacy. Um, and we're finding, wow, the, the, the foreign land seems just as destitute as what, whatever I was holding this first part of my life with. And many of you are making that move back to the Father's house, and you're taking up that call to be a son or a daughter but not out of that external obligation mentality anymore, but saying, no, I want to be transformed from the inside out. That maybe it wasn't the practices of being in the house, of being a child of God. Maybe it wasn't ever really about the actions, but it was about my posture. It was about the way I held those things. And I think that that is a sign of maturity. As many of you are coming home to God, You've asked the hard questions, you've wrestled with things, you've dealt with disappointment and disillusionment, and you said, yet there's still something there for me to pursue. You're, you're re-entering into some of those practices. For many of you, I've heard it's uh, prayer rhythms. Some of you are praying the daily office. Um, maybe you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or whatever, and you're familiar with like those liturgical prayers, and you did it just to check off the box. Uh, but now you're entering back in because you're like, I need something steady that holds me and, 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 and offers me a grounding when everything in my life feels chaotic. Um, for some of you, it's the rhythm of showing up here every seven days and saying, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I think that that's just how life works, right? Like we, we rebel against um, all of the, the things that were put on us when we were children. We say, well, I have freedom. I don't have to go to church anymore, I don't have to pray if I don't want to, or I don't have to read the Bible, or whatever it might be, and then we get to this place to say, well, this doesn't seem any better. And so we start re-engaging with those things and saying, maybe, just maybe, possibly, the great tradition, the ancient path that has been there this whole time is the path to me meeting God, the path to salvation. But I was, it, it was my posture in holding it. So today, um, we're going to be talking about one of those issues that I think finds itself on this prodigal loop. Um, and it's something that's often a cause for shame. Um, it's, a, it's a place, um, a thing that we often keep secret and we hide. Uh, it's maybe something that you left behind from the way that you grew up in the church. Um, that this kind of, it was something that was imposed upon you. And you said, well, I reject that. I'm going to step out in the name of freedom um, because you were never really told what it's actually for. So I want to redeem that today. Um, so I'm going to pray. You're like, what is it? I don't know. You're going to have to find out. It's like a choose your own adventure, okay? Um, so I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into what the Lord has for us today. So Heavenly Father, we do uh, testify the truth that you're here, um, that you are with us, that you are for us, and you're not against us. Um, Lord, you do not invite us into feelings of guilt and shame, but nor do we run from what we feel. Holy Spirit, we trust you to take us by the hand and to walk us through uh, our emotions, to show us what you see there, 
what, um, what idols we may be holding tightly to for our salvation or security that you want to um, teach us how to release. And even though there could be all sorts of feelings there, Lord, we trust you and we know that you are good. It may be the reality of all of our lives that the more we see your healing hand at work in our story, the more we trust you are good, the more that we look forward to healing because that healing becomes ground zero for our intimacy with you. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here's where we're going to go today. The human God is generous. If we are made in God's image, being generous is our most natural state. We've been using this language to talk about Jesus as the human God, to kind of hold together that Jesus was all in on being human and he was all in on being God. And a lot of times we grow up, even if we're reading scripture, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, here's Jesus in his kind of godly moment, right? When he's like stoic and he seems disconnected and he's kind of got a handle on things. And then Jesus like jumps into a human moment where he gets frustrated and he, had, he feels a feeling because God can't possibly feel feelings. Feelings are a liability, right? And then he jumps back into his godly moment and he says something really profound. And then he has a human moment when he's like hungry because God couldn't possibly get hungry. Like, you know, and it's, it's this continual like bouncing back and forth that we have that creates this schizophrenic God because our, our vision of God is usually more influenced by Greek philosophy than it is Jewish scriptures. That we see the God who is immutable and immovable and all-knowing and all-seeing and all this kind of stuff that comes more from Aristotle than it does from Moses. So when we call Jesus the human God, what we believe is when we see Jesus moving through the world, we're looking at God. Not a version of God, not a temporary God, but that is the best vision of what God is actually like. And so what we see in this human God in the Gospel of Mark is that this God is inherently generous, that this God believes in an abundant world, and there's an invitation from the human God to participate in that generosity. And I think what's bold to say then is that if we are made in this God's image, being generous is actually our most natural state. Now, see, you and I, we don't believe that because we've been told uh, by the world, and indeed many of us have been told by the Christian household itself, that to be human is inherently to be selfish and miserly. So the inv invitation to become generous like God is generous is to become something that is not human. It's to become superhuman. It's to become something else than what we are in our most natural state. Um, this is this kind of, this is the idea of like total depravity. Like as a human being, at the core, you are, you're rubbish, you're infected. God doesn't particularly like you. He doesn't want to get too close to you because you've got human being cooties. And he kind of needs somebody else to go there on his behalf. And that's what Jesus's role is. But I think the, the radical uh, message of the gospel is if you are in Christ, what is true of Christ is true of you. So now to say, oh, wow, it's not that becoming a generous person makes me less human in some strange way and more godlike. It's to say it's all kind of, that's the, the most human I can be is to be made in the image of God, which is to be generous. And I think that that's so important for us to say up front 
Because when we begin to talk about generosity, and specifically today, when we talk about our relationship to money, you're going to start noticing that in the feelings that you feel. Um, because the messages that you so often have uh, integrated into your worldview are that you're not really generous, uh, and you're not really other-centered, and all of that is kind of alien language, some other place that you're supposed to get to. So today we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 10, beginning in the 17th verse. And this story will be familiar with, to many of you, but I encourage you to try to listen with new ears. So you can read along on the screen, you can close your eyes and just kind of imagine the story playing out in front of you and seeing how uh, God might welcome you into the story. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he replied, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him, first off. We'll get to that in a moment, okay? What does that do for you? What does that do for you? Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. A couple things that I want to highlight here, just like little uh, phrases uh, that might be particularly helpful to understand what's going on. So first, this young man, you know, in other passages, is called the rich young ruler. Um, what we know about him is, <laughs> I feel like, well, none of you know what Blackadder is anyway, but he's saying like, there's three things that you need to know about him. And you're like, what is it? He's like, number one, he's rich. And you're like, okay. Number two, he's young and he's a ruler. These are the three things that we know about this guy. If you saw Blackadder, you'd know that's hilarious. Um, so he comes and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
which is a very interesting thing to say, because if you know anything about inheritance, you don't do something to inherit anything. Like, it's given to you by your birthright. So here, the young man is already partially correct. He kind of understands his relationship to the kingdom, that it is something that we receive. We don't earn the kingdom. Um, but what's interesting here, when he says eternal life, now a lot of times in our, in our worldview, again, one of these things that's far more Greek philosophy than it is Hebrew scripture, is when we hear eternal life or we see the word heaven, we think of this thing or this place that we go when we die. And it's full of clouds and it's full of little baby cherubim playing harps. That's eternal life, okay? Very little to do with actual scripture. Um, what the Jews in Jesus' day believed was there's the present age, and the present age is it's corrupt, and um, it's full of violence and strife and discord, and um, Israel is kind of always being persecuted in this, uh, in this time, but Israel also recognizes, like, we're not exactly the way that we're supposed to be, um, and they spoke of this present age and then this age to come, and the age to come is the age that envisions what does it look like when God is king. And it, as we pray from, on, on earth as it is in heaven, so we pray from heaven to earth. It's not the other way around. We don't leave earth and then go to heaven. We invite heaven to come to earth. And the fulfillment of everything that God is doing in the kingdom is to actually see earth redeemed and Jesus on the throne. Make sense? That's our eschatology. That's where we're going. We're not going to go somewhere else and then this earth is going to burn up and now we're in the clouds with the baby cherubim playing harps. It's we live in a world that has been redeemed by the work of Jesus and that is the eternal life that is offered to us. So what this young man is saying is, what do I need to do to share in the abundance of the advancing kingdom? What do I need to do now to receive in impartiality, what will someday come in its fullness? Which is a very good question to ask. It's a very good thing for us to be asking ourselves. It's not, what do I need to do now to, to kind of basically twiddle my thumbs for the next 40, 50, 60 years, however, you know, while you're taking care of yourself, uh, so that I can go to heaven when I die. It's, how do I participate now in the kingdom to to live under the kingship of Jesus now, that whatever comes after death, I'm already like prepared for it. And, and so Jesus responds um, by telling him something blatantly obvious. Um, follow the commandments. And he speaks of the Ten Commandments here, kind of the foundation of Jewish law. And the young man says, yeah, I've been doing all of this since I was a child. And then we find that beautiful little phrase there, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And again, Mark doesn't always give us emotional context for what's happening in the story, um, but we feel that moment. Like, we want, it, we want that, right? We want to be on the other side of that verse. Like, Jesus looked at you and he loved you. Now, what does Jesus looking at you and loving you mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus looks at you and loves you and says, whatever decisions you're making in your life right now, I just thumbs up. Right? That's not what this means. Because it's not what Jesus does for this guy. He doesn't go, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you know what, buddy? You got it. You nailed it. Keep, just, keep, just keep doing what you do. Whatever you believe about yourself, that's, that's right. And I will just give that a stamp of approval. No, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack, go and do this. 
Jesus' love for us is one part affirmation that Jesus blesses us where we are today. But for Jesus to truly love us, there's almost this like really tender insistence that we're not going to stay in that place. And I'm very, very concerned. You've heard me talk about this a lot of times. I'm very concerned that our modern vision of love never gets beyond the affirmation stage. Like that's what love gets reduced to. Do you affirm me in who I am right now without any expectation for change? And I think that that's really dangerous. Um, any kind of relationship, I've, you know, I've told about like when I was in college and a friend, she's dating a guy who wasn't really good news and we're like, oh, well, if we really love her, we'll just let her make her own decisions. And then you're like, I don't, I don't know if that's what love is. That seems very passive and rather pithy to just say, yep, just whatever you think about yourself right now or whatever you're doing, that's totally fine. Jesus' love is one part affirmation, but it's an affirmation of who we are in the deepest part of ourselves, not the surfacey things about us that we believe make up who we really are. He loves the core part of us, the true image of Godness within each one of us. But then Jesus' love also invites transformation. You're lacking something. You're missing something. Go and do this. And so Jesus' love is, is this advocacy that we are going to grow, that we are going to become more than we are the day that we meet him. And I think that there's an irony in Jesus saying to this rich young ruler, one thing you lack. Because if there's anybody in their world that probably didn't lack anything, it's a guy who's rich, it's a guy who's young, and it's a guy who rules. Like, he's got it together, you know? Like, he's probably, like, the TikTok influencer of his day. Like, you're checking in on this guy to be like, what do I have to do to be, like, totally awesome? And he's like, you have to eat raw liver, and you have to, like, whatever, you know? Like, he's probably, like, a guy who has it together. Um, and Jesus is like, you're missing something, which is probably the worst thing this guy's ever heard. But, like, we get on some level, he feels that, which is why he's coming to Jesus. He's like, well... I'm rich, and I'm young, and I rule, but this doesn't seem to be it. Like, there's something more. So Jesus is naming something that he feels on a very deep level about himself, but he maybe doesn't want to admit. And what he's saying is, the irony is that you're financially full, but you're spiritually empty. And he knows this. Uh, and you know this, don't you? You know that you are financially full in this room for the most part, but you're spiritually empty. And so perhaps he's coming to Jesus, say, give me more rules. Give me more law. Like, what are we supposed to do? So you remember the Pharisees, like all of Judaism is built on the Ten Commandments. The Pharisees have 613 laws on top of that or try to interpret what do these things mean. So he's probably already engineered, like, just give me more rules. Teach me how to behave. What else do I have to do to be a good little Jewish boy be able to inherit the kingdom, which is what we do all the time. We're like, Jesus, just give me more rules and regulations and these external things that are going to help me uh, just to be a good little Christian boy or a good little Christian girl. And Jesus doesn't add anything more to the Torah. He says, yeah, you've read it. You've read it. You know what you're supposed to do. But the thing that Jesus does challenge is he says, listen, it's not about following the rules. It's about how I want you to open up I want you to start letting go of the idols that you hold in your life that are keeping you from actually knowing God. And the subtle kind of joke in the story is when he says, good teacher, and Jesus says, 
why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he says, come and follow me. It's an invitation to know the goodness of God embodied in this human God. And so the man walks away because he has this idol in his life. This thing that he knows is holding him back from inheriting eternal life, but he can't let go of it because he's scared. Who am I if I don't have my wealth? Where does my security come from if I give away everything that I have? And he probably felt the cognitive dissonance that you and I so often feel in that. So then Jesus turns to his disciples and he gives this famous line about how it's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked and amazed by this. And again, this is one of those lines, I think, for us who, when we've grown up with the scriptures, we, um, you know, we, we see it, we know it, and it's actually lost its radical nature. But, but here's what I think is so important here is that the disciples uh, in the first century, a lot of people in their culture, just like in our culture, assume wealth is a sign of God's blessing. Now, how many of you grew up in a kind of word of faith church culture? Just Tyler. Okay. Um, just Tyler. Uh, this is this idea of like, we ask God for wealth and like God blesses us. Now, here's the far more subtle thing to show that all of y'all grew up in word of faith. How many of you, when people talk about blessing, they talk about material wealth? Like, oh, God's blessed me with a house, health, uh, a bank account, a car, right? These are the things that we point to as God's blessings in our lives. Now, hear me. This, I'm not saying they aren't, okay? I'm just saying we have this natural assumption to believe that blessings of God in our lives are material goods and material wealth. And subtly, what we imply in that theology is that if you don't have good health, or you don't have a bank account, or you don't have a house, or you don't have a car, then really, you've probably been cursed by God. Or God doesn't really like you as much as he likes the rich person. And this is where our Americanism has infiltrated the gospel message. The radical thing here is that the disciples assume that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus says, wealth might be the biggest hindrance to entering the kingdom. Wealth might be the biggest hindrance. It might be the hardest thing for us to overcome. And I think that should make us sit up on our seats. Because Jesus says how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. So what we need to do is we need to have an intelligent conversation about money. What is money? What is wealth? And what has happened to it in our kind of cultural milieu that we subtly believe these theologies of blessing and cursing or where our security is found, or what we can trust in this life to get us through, that actually might be the biggest inhibitor for us receiving eternal life. And I think it's also important, again, that we're not prescriptive when it comes to Scripture. For this young man, Jesus said, go and sell everything. And I think it's wrong theology to, to be prescriptive in that, to take that idea and say, okay, so every single Christian everywhere has to just give away everything that they have for the poor, and then follow Jesus. That's not how this works. And you know this about Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't, he's not so interested in 
rules and regulations and laws. He's interested in delving into the deepest part of our hearts that we refuse to look at and say, what's really going on there? Let's start there and let's begin to rebuild uh, a world. Let's rebuild uh, a, a way of being in the world, practices that help us to deal with actually what it is that we're keeping hidden in our heart. So I want to talk about uh, what money is. I want to talk about how um, God desires to redeem the idea of money and then deliver us from that idolatry of wealth and believing that wealth is the evidence of God's blessing in our lives. So let's talk about money first. Money is the most boring and most concrete evidence of what we believe about ourselves and our place in the world. This is what's so fascinating about talking about money. It's not just in the church. I think it's in our, in our, in our world in general. You, know, like the, you should never talk about money like in public. It's, it's very bad taste. You don't talk to your fellow employees about their salaries and what they're making. Like, it's, like, it's this shameful thing, but it's also an incredibly boring thing. But it permeates every part of our culture. So money is in this strange place that it's, it's so ubiquitous that we don't really see it and how much it plays a role in our lives. Um, so it's boring in that sense, but it's also shameful um, because suddenly we do believe that our identity is found in our money. And so we don't want to talk about money because now we're talking about ourselves. But I think because of that, money is the most concrete evidence of what we believe about ourselves. So much in this world is rather intangible. It's hard to, to, to measure uh, you know, our growth. It's hard to measure what it means to be a good person. But when you can point to a number, that's really helpful. And indeed, that's where money comes from. At the risk of sounding obvious, money is a tangible measurement of labor. Wow, that's what money is. Did you know that? This was supposed to be anyway. Now it just represents a bunch of ones and zeros. And I think the, like, the, the value of a coin is actually like more than the assigned value because of the metals in it or whatever. I don't know. Money, you do this amount of work, okay, and then you get this amount of pieces of paper for that work. Or this many ones and zeros are put into your bank account. So when Norb draws on my arm... I say, thank you very much. Here's a bunch of ones and zeros. He says, great, now I can eat for the day. That's how money works, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? I'm not anti-money. In the ideal world, we don't have it, and it's like, I haven't done a Star Trek reference in a while, but that's the beauty of Star Trek is like, as soon as we find out there's aliens, then we do away with war and money, and we just like, everybody just works for the common good, and it's like, if you're a lieutenant commander, that's your lot in life, and you're like, let's go. Um, money is the, the least worst thing that we can deal with right now, okay? So there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And we would all agree with that. And I think it's that agreement that actually prevents us from talking about what it really is. Because we're like, well, it's just, a, you know, it's just for transactions and it's just a measurement of labor. Um, what happens, unfortunately, is that it moves from being a measurement of labor to becoming our sense of security uh, and even our value. It's where we find our security, and it's where we find our value. These things that we would normally assign to our relationship with God, the eternal God, um, the God who is always with us, the, our, the highest ideal personified that we see in God, 
we assign to something lesser. And this is literally what it means to make an idol, is that we take a created thing and we imbue that created thing with the expectations that should normally be reserved for the uncreated, okay? So you see this all through the Old Testament. Paul talks about it in Romans, right? Like they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they began to worship like animals and lizards and other people. Like we took what God is meant to be for us and we imbued that expectation into a created thing, a shape, a piece of wood, a piece of stone, a piece of paper, a coin. And, we, and the problem there is God did not create money, okay? Um, God did not create the system for money. God did not tell us this is a really great way to manage your assets. Um, we did. It's a human-created system that theoretically is rather neutral, but in practice becomes something very dangerous. So what happens when we're honest with ourselves is we begin to look at our relationship to money as an ethical relationship. Because not only does it say what we think about ourselves, it also says something about what we think about our place in the world. And we're going to look in a moment at the scripture this actually comes from, but we, we often think money is the root of all evil, which is not what the Bible says. We'll find out in a moment. But money amplifies what is already in our hearts. Okay, That's what money does. Uh, I just made a Star Trek reference. I don't know if I want to... Oh, we'll do this. Okay, fine. Uh, Captain America. Okay, the serum. There's this really great little conversation before Captain America becomes Captain America. And Stanley Tucci tells him, it's not that you take this and then you just become strong. It amplifies what is already within your heart. So if you're like kind of a bad guy, it makes you worse. But if you're a good guy, it makes you great. So that's how money works for us. Whenever you have money, it amplifies what's already within your heart. So if you're, if you're a good person and you're already living a truly, again, this is the thing about generosity and miserliness. It has nothing to do with how much is in your bank account at all. There is a tendency, as Jesus rightly points, to say the richer you are, the harder it is for you to get into heaven. But it doesn't mean that poor people are exempt from this understanding of relationship to money. It can really guide who we are when we don't have it as well. But money, as an ethical move, amplifies what's already in your heart. So whoever you are today, and then you win a million dollars, what do you do with that? And we'd all like to think that we would be radically generous people, but in reality, as soon as we get it, it would tell us what's already in our heart. And this is what we see in Jesus uh, moving through Jerusalem, and he sees the Pharisees giving their proper amount. You know, they're doing what they're supposed to do, the external obligations. Look at us. Look at how uh, generous we are. And then that little, the widow that comes along and just gives the two little coins. He says, she gave more than they did right? Not because it has anything to do with amount, but because in her heart she is generous, and she probably gave everything that she had, whereas they can afford what they're giving. And so we find this, you know, kind of money as ethics thing in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. So this is a letter that Paul's writing to a young leader in the church, um, kind of giving him some views on, like, this is how you are to steward your community, and he's challenging them on this idea that our finances amplify what is already in our heart. So he says, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain, okay? So the verse prior, he talks about how people have been robbed of the truth, and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's literally in the Bible, which I find so funny in the American church, 
because that's what we often see, that godliness is a means to financial gain. It means that I peddle godliness to you and you pay me for it, and then I become richer and richer. I remember this, um, the, the kind of the, the equivalent of the Orlando Weekly in the Jacksonville area, um, this, uh, this guy had gone around to all these different churches in Jacksonville just to see what's happening in the, in the churches there. And I, the, the, you know, one of these churches, the pastor drove this like gigantic, amazing vehicle, blah, 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 blah. And he talked to people in the church about it, and they said, well, he, that God wants him to have that, you know, Mercedes or I think it was a Hummer maybe. Um, so all I'm saying is like, I'm coming over 10 years and I have a 2014 Volkswagen Jetta. If you think I deserve it, you know what I mean? We'll get the, the I think the airplane is 25 years. Um, yeah, well, I need a new bike. My bike got stolen. Uh, aw, yeah. Uh, anyway, God wanted somebody else to have it, apparently. I thought about putting a, like, a note in my front yard that just said, to whomever stole my bike, you're forgiven, and I hope that God blesses you, you know? That's like the heaping coals verse. Anyway, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about that. Godliness with contentment. Paul talks a lot about contentment. There's another place in Scripture. He says, whether I have a lot or I have a little, I have learned that the secret to contentment is being in Christ. That's what he means by the, like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, as opposed to our American reading of that that's like, if you just believe it, you can achieve it. Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's contentment. Whether I have a lot or I have a little, I know that I'm going to be okay because I know where I really derive my value from and my security. So we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever." Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. One of the biggest fears that we have in this world is, will there be enough? Is there enough? And a lot of the panic that we hear in a world that has 
divorced itself from God as being the source of all life says, no, there is not enough. And you have to do what you've got to do in order to get your piece of the pie. And it puts us in inherent um, competition with one another. If there's not enough, then we have to try harder and strive and get more secure. And if other people get left behind, well, that's just the way that life works. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And it's amazing that Paul says it's the love of money, not money itself. It's our relationship to money that is the root of all evil because if we don't believe there's enough, if we don't believe we're going to be okay and that we're secure and that Jesus is going to take care of us, then slowly what hap- that, that is amplified in our heart, the, the more wealth that we accumulate and we actually become more and more self-reliant. And the trap that we fall into is to say, well, when I have enough, then I'll be generous. So when I'm comfortable, um, when I have enough wealth to be happy, um, then I'm going to start practicing generosity. When I get my financial house in order, then I will give to God and I will give to other people, but not before. And what has been shown time and again is that's a relative scale because we never actually deal with the fear that's underlying our accumulation of wealth. Nelson Rockefeller was one of the richest men in the world in his day. And someone asked him, how much did he need in order to live comfortably? And he said, a little more than I can get. And that's, I think, where all of us live. If I could just a little bit more, then I'll be safe, I'll be comfortable, I'll be happy, and then I can give. Now, many of you are probably protesting this, and you're saying there are people in this world who cannot afford to be generous. Um, There are people who cannot afford to have some sort of rigorous imposition of a tithe and then anything beyond that. And I would say, you are very correct. Um, But does that have anything to do with you? And I'd be willing to bet that most of us in this room, that does not apply to us. As the great theologian slash New York rapper, Homeboy Sandman once said, we are the 99% locally, but we are the 1% globally. So when when Jesus talks about rich people, he may just be talking to everyone in this room. And we have to be honest with that and not hide behind. And I think especially to associate ourselves with the poor in a way that it, like, it's an excuse for us not to be generous. I think that's pretty awful. Um, we have to realize that we are the ones that are rather comfortable and how difficult it is for us to enter the kingdom. So, What do we do about this? I think we have to reconstruct our idea of generosity. That practicing generosity begins with a commitment to give regardless of how we feel. Whether or not we are comfortable, whether or not we are happy, whether or not we think that we are safe or that we have enough, we commit to practicing generosity. It's the way we call it practice because you do it when you don't feel like it. And so generosity is an act of faith that over time, we believe, becomes joy as we see the fruit of obedience. I've told this story many times before, but um, in my prior work in Nashville running a ministry school, we were kind of doing a yard sale, and this big SUV drove by, and it kind of screeched to a halt a block down the road, turned around, and pulled right into the, the parking lot where we were. And someone gets out of the car, and I'm like, I'm in, I'm in trouble somehow. Like, what's about to happen? And this guy walks over, and he says, here, 
the Lord told me to give this to you. And he hands me a check with just like a storm brewing over his head and he gets in his car and it was like for like $1,000 or $1,500 or something. Like he was not, you know it says like the Lord loves a cheerful giver. This, that's, this guy was not a cheerful giver. But he was obedient. And I think that's the pattern. I think you know this. You don't start with cheer and then become obedient. In fact, that almost never happens. You start with obedience, and over time, if you're, if you're holding the right posture, it becomes joy. It becomes cheer. Because it's, it's really about aspiration. Aspiration means we want to want to be generous. Like, none of us want to be generous, but we want to want to be generous. And so we start living now as if we're living for the sake of the generous person we are to become. But at the core, like this rich young ruler, we believe that we must be delivered from miserly fear to live into genuine freedom and generosity. This is a question of salvation. You know, that Jesus, the salvation he is offering us is a deliverance from the idolatry of wealth and, and the fear of not having enough. So the question that I often get, again, one of these kind of prodigal loop things that I see is that I've, several of you have come to me asking about finances, which just feels like it's important to talk about this, is like, what's the rule? Or like, what are the rules for learning how to give? And I'm not entirely convinced there are rules. Um, maybe there are and maybe there aren't. The most important thing is what's the goal for that sense of generosity? What are, we, what are you trying to achieve? Are you going back to this model of just checking off a religious box? Like, well, I gave to church, check, okay, I did it, I'm good. Or are you saying, I want to become more like God? Which is to say also, in a strange way, I want to become more fully human. And if that's your goal, that begins to shape whatever you do. So for me, the way that I have continued to attempt to shape my giving is like so. So I tithe to this church. I give 10% uh, of what I bring in, which I think is really stupid because y'all pay me. But when I was a child, I also thought it was really stupid that my dad would give me an allowance. I'm like, dad, seriously, I'm going to tithe from the money that you gave me to the church that gave you this money. Why don't we just cut out the middleman and let's pay you less and then I get less and then we have to deal with it. It's a very stupid thing because tithing is not reasonable. I mean, it is in the sense that, like, you know, we've got to pay for this place and you've got to pay for staff. But, like, tithe is an act of worship. Um, it's an act of worship. The Old Testament says it's the first fruits. It's an act of worship that shapes our relationship to the remaining 90% of what we have. Um, and for me, and maybe this isn't you, uh, tithe is not generous. I don't think tithe is, is generosity. I think that's obligation. I think that's obedience. To, to give 10%, because it doesn't really cost me that much. Like, if I'm honest, when I tithe, it's not really costing me anything when I look at my bank account. Like, it's not a sacrifice, not like, not like that much. It's a sacrifice of gratitude, but it's not a sacrifice of, like, now I'm uncomfortable because I've given away 10% of what I make. Um, I think, to me, that's, it's an intentional act of worship that I give to God and God's people and it begins to shape the remaining 90%. In the next category I look at, after 10%, these, these are the categories I believe are actual generosity. Um, there's consistent generosity in my life. Um, what are the causes that are on my heart? 
Who are the people in the world that are doing the amazing work that I believe in? That again, money is like the most efficient and most boring way to change the world. If the world already operates on it, we may as well convert, I almost said kingdom bucks. We may as well convert money that, that we have into bucks that do the work of the kingdom. So looking around saying, who's doing the good work? What are the causes that I care about? And it's a way for me to be effective in the world to bring about justice, but a justice that has been shaped by worship. So if my tithe is worship, then my generosity is justice. Um, But I'm beginning to see the work in the world that needs to be done through the eyes of God. And then thirdly, the third category is spontaneous generosity. Do I have margins in my budget for when there's a crisis in somebody else's life? Because I don't, I don't want to be caught in that place where uh, a friend, or even a friend of a friend, I remember this with the last hurricane that we had that completely devastated huge parts of Orlando. Like, none of us were expecting that. And there were friends of friends who lost their entire apartments. And I don't want to be in a position in life where something happens to someone that I love or somebody who loves somebody, and I go, oh, sorry, I don't have anything. Because I wasted it all in stupid crap that I didn't actually need that I thought was going to make me happy, and it did for about five minutes. I want to have those margins so when there's unexpected crisis, I have something that I can give. So that's how I, I'm looking at it, and so I'm continuing to shape my giving. There's, there's tithe as an act of worship, consistent generosity as a practice of justice, and then spontaneous generosity to be able to show up for others. So to wrap this up, I'm going to invite the band to come forward. I think the question that Jesus invites all of us to is what steps can I take to leave behind miserliness and fear and inherit generosity and joy in the abundant kingdom? So when you came in, you were given a dollar bill, and many of you probably freaked out. I want you to bring that bill out, and I want you to hold it in your hand, and I'm going to lead you kind of through a prayer exercise that's going to... Again, the Spirit of God does not invite shame and guilt, but we don't run away from shame and guilt. We press into them with the presence of Jesus because there's something deep in our heart that Jesus wants to show us. So I want you to pull out that bill, and I want you to hold it in your hand, and I want you to really look at it and examine the contours of it, like what what it is, what it says, what's on it, the irony that it says, in God we trust. Uh, And we say, which God is that as Americans? But I want you to take a moment, just consider, like, as you hold that dollar bill in your hand, what does it represent to you? Is it it an icon in the sense that it's it's tangible evidence of labor? Or is it an idol? Is it something that is worthy of your worship? Is it something that defines you? that provides you safety and security, that offers you prestige and power? What is this thing to you? So I want you to sit with that for a moment.
Now, whatever you feel is coming to the surface, an idolatrous way that you hold money, the idolatrous relationship you have, I want you to take some moment and convert, convert that anxiety into prayer. That you can turn to God, who does not invite shame and guilt upon you, but a God who receives your confessions. Not because he doesn't know what's in your heart. It's because he wants you to know that you know what's in your heart so that you can do something together. And I want you to confess to God any fear in your heart, any fear of lack. I want you to confess any idolatry of power, privilege, value, security, whatever it might be that, that is welling up within you. I want you just to speak that out to God just between you and him. And now I want you to ask God for something. In the same way that Jesus looks upon the rich young ruler and loves him and says, one thing you lack, go and do this. I want you to ask God to grant you the courage to be obedient. You're not asking for joy. You're not asking for cheer. But to believe that if we start with obedience, it will lead us to real, true freedom. So just take a moment. Just ask God for courage to be obedient. Now, I want to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to go old school. You're going to come forward, and you're going to bring that bill as an act of worship. This is, again, it's the world we live in, I, digital giving. The cost is that it robs us of, like, the physical act of giving, which is a shame. Um, it's amazing how many of you talked about, the, like, how sanitary were these dollar bills. Like, 20 years ago, none of y'all were asking that question. It's the post-pandemic world, right? But I'm going to pray, and you're going to bring that bill. And if you want to attach that bill to other bills, feel free. And you're going to come forward, starting in the front rows, and you're going to put it in one of these baskets and saying, this, this, this idol is becoming an icon. It's a symbol of my obedience um, to give, to be generous, to practice worship, to practice justice in the most boring and most concrete way that I can. And it, again, we talk about so often that it's like our bodies lead our hearts and minds when we put these things to action. So this is a sacred act 
for us to be able uh, to give. And hopefully when we count them up, they'll all still be here. But if you take it with you, at least invest it in some good out in the world. So if you just hold your hands out in front of you. Almighty God, whose loving hand has given us all that we possess, grant us grace that we may honor you with our substance and remembering the account which we must one day give may be faithful stewards of your bounty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's come forward to give as an act of worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.